easier hours and more money. That's what everybody wants, right? Yeah. Big change. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. God, thank you for being so good. God, I know we went over prayer requests, God, and, and all these are needs that need to be touched. All these are people that are calling on you by faith, and they've asked us to pray for them by faith. And God, I know we didn't take time to tell you thank you for all the ones that you brought through COVID. Thank you for what you did for my family and the way you brought us through it, God. Thank you for the many that you've healed, the miracles that you've done. Thank you, God, for what you did for, for Alan and, and intervened there, God. Thank you, Lord, for, for what you've done with Brother Terry and, and Miss Phyllis, God. There's just there's so many thank yous. There's so many answered prayers. There's so many things that we could take time to look at, God, and just praise you for being so good. God, I don't want to spend just all our time asking for things, but you said that we could come into the throne room of grace, that we might obtain mercy. Lord, you told us to pray for the sick. And God, all these names that are called out are sick. They have things that they need, God. They just need you to reach down and touch them, Father. I pray that you would inter intervene with each one of them, God. I pray your perfect will would be accomplished. And God, I pray you'd be with us here tonight as we look into your word, Father. I pray you'd give us something that we take from here, God, that... We take a nugget from here, God. This world beats us down and pulls us down and wears us down. But it's your word that picks us up. It's your spirit that carries us, Lord. It's your presence that, that energizes us, Lord. I pray you'd be with us tonight. Help us, Father, to leave here more pleasing to you. We love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So... No, I didn't. I didn't have Miss Frieda on this list, y'all. If y'all know, she's had some really bad infection in her thumb for I guess almost a month. I know three weeks. Lauren, they've had to lance it a couple times. She's been on a lot of antibiotics, but they had to do surgery on it today, so she is at home. Um, but that's why, that's why you don't have anything up here. See, y'all see, I ain't nothing by myself. Y'all don't have a sound man back there, but at least he turned me on where I can be noisy. Um, but but Miss Frieda's out had her surgery today, so but pray there that in fact she she needs some knee work done. She's got some surgery she needs to get done, but they can't do anything until they can get that infection out of her thumb. So I'd I'd ask you to continue to pray for her and um, well, God God can take care of all things, right? Some things seem bigger than others, but when they're in our house, they're all big. So last week, we looked at jealousy within the church. I better put something up. I don't have a clock up there tonight, so I don't know what time we get out of here. Um, the, the early church dealt with jealousy. We looked at how the, the Greek-speaking Jews who basically came from Greek lands um, when, when they were taken away are complaining that, that there is discrimination within the church. They're complaining that the, the Palestinian-born Jews, the native Jews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, that their widows are getting taken better care of than the Greek-speaking Jews. And so the apostles called the church in and said, you take care of this. You appoint yourself seven men full of the Spirit, and you let them take care of the matters of the church. So the first one, of course, that we read was named Stephen. Stephen, the Bible says, was a man that was filled with faith. And that he's filled with the Holy Ghost. The Sanhedrin, they came against Stephen and they tried debating. We looked at last week how they tried coming up against his wisdom. But he was so full of the wisdom of the Holy Ghost, they had nothing to combat against his wisdom. So he just made them all 
look like they didn't know anything, so they did what they always do, the same thing they did in the life of Christ when they can't debate and they can't win in discussion. Then they turned to violence, and we finished up at chapter 6, the last four verses, beginning verse 12, so they stirred up the people and the elders, the scribes, came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses who said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, talking about the temple, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us, which would have been the Mosaic law. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So they have accused him of blasphemy because he's spoken against the, the, well, he's spoken the truth. They think that the temple is forever, but the temple's not forever. They think that the Mosaic law is forever, but the Mosaic law is not forever. So he's speaking of those things coming to an end, praise God, coming into this dispensation period of grace that we live in. And so they're accusing him of blasphemy for these things. So verse number 1 of chapter 7, then said the high priest, he's talking to Stephen, he says, are these things so? In verse number 2, Stephen begins his rebuttal. He brings his argument against their accusations. It's important to understand that Stephen is not worried about acquittal right here. He's not worried about trying to get off the hook. He's not worried about trying to prove himself innocent or any of that. Stephen's simply trying to get the truth out. He, he's not worried about whether or not you're going to let me go, whether or not you're going to kill me or not kill me, whether or not you're going to persecute me or prosecute me. None of that means anything to Stephen. Stephen has one thing on his mind. There's a truth that needs to be told. It's the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to set the record straight so that everybody knows the truth. He said in verse 2, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon. And he said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. He came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Charon. From thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein ye now dwell. So Stephen knows the character of these people that he's talking to. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the, the Pharisees. This is the Sadducees. This is the religious elite of the Jews. He understands that they have targeted him right here the same way that they targeted Jesus. They have targeted him to try to get rid of him, to silence him, because what he's talking about is Jesus. They didn't like Jesus, and they don't like these men that, that are preaching Jesus. But what, what Stephen does, and this is really good for all of us, the platform seems to be less than convenient. He seems to be put in a really bad situation. He's in a bad spot, but he doesn't look at his problems. He doesn't look at the awkwardness or the badness of it. What he does, he takes advantage of the platform that God has given him, to preach the truth of the gospel to some people that need to hear it. He begins his defense at Abraham. Abraham is where faith began. Abraham is where the Jews began. Abraham is where the, the, the Hebrew nation comes from. So he begins at the beginning. That is the origin of the promise of God. God made his promise to Abraham, that of Abraham he would raise one up and the seed would be as the sands of the seashore and as the stars of the heavens innumerable. So that's where the promise started. That's where Stephen takes them back to. The life of Abraham is independent of the two charges that they brought here. It has nothing to do with the Mosaic law. It has nothing to do with the temple. It goes back even before any of that. He makes it clear here that their faith does not begin with the Mosaic law, nor does it rest in the temple. God is not restricted to a person. God is not restricted to a place. 
God is not restricted to a time. God is not restricted to an institution. God is not restricted at all. God can reveal himself to whomever he chooses, whenever he chooses. That was true in the Old Testament. That was true in the early days of the church, and that's true today. God can reveal himself whenever to whomever he chooses. So he speaks of, about Abraham talking he was there in the land of Ur, and his homeland was Ur, in the land of the Chaldees. Abraham became a stranger to the world, a pilgrim, a sojourner in the land as he traveled, looking for the place that, that God sent him to go to. So Stephen began with, with the calling out of Abraham to go into a land unknown, to leave his father's house and to go into a land that God would show him. Now what we know is that he didn't do exactly right in the beginning. He was told to leave his father's house and go into a land that I will show thee, but we know that he didn't leave his father's house. He took his father with him, and, and they all traveled. And so he ends up bogged down in a place called Haran until his father's death. What Haran is is a compromise. It left the land of Ur. It left the land of the Chaldees. It left the land of idol worship. It left the land that had all their false religions and all of their idols and their gods. But it didn't set out to be everything that God called them to be. It just becomes a compromise there, bogged down in the land of the region of Mesopotamia. But that's not what God has in store for Abraham. He, he doesn't mean for him to stay there. So he stays there until Terah, his father, died. That'd be Genesis chapter 11. His father died at 205 years old. Verse number 12, it says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram. Now, that means it was said before. That was back when he was at the father's house. That was back when he was at the land of the Chaldees that the Lord had said to get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Stephen makes it clear that, that we are to be willing to pull up stake from anywhere, anytime, God says, I got somewhere for you to go. Oh, it's going to get quiet on a Wednesday right now. That's hard. When, when God says, I got something for you to do, it's time to do. When God says, I got somewhere for you to go, it's time to go. And, and he makes it clear that, that that's where all of this started because God calls him out to go. So he's using the story of Abraham, Abraham here to, to set up that, that God has more in store for them than the law of Moses. God, from the very beginning, had more in store from them than the temple and the temple practices and the sacrifices and, and all this there. Christ came to give us a personal relationship, so much more than the temple practices, so much more than trying to keep the law, so much more than having to bring the lambs and the rounds, but to give us a personal one-on-one -on -one relationship with the creator of the universe. He says, God brought Abraham into this land. It's the land where you now dwell. All of you are here because of that promise. Verse number 5, it says, Gave him none inheritance in it, not so much as to set his foot on it. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when yet he had no child. We know that Abraham didn't even have a child. Well, not a legitimate child, until he's 100 years old. Stephen is establishing the fact. He's been accused of blasphemy against the Mosaic law and against the temple because he said this stuff's not permanent. He is establishing the fact that the temple is not a 
permanent institution, nor are the temple practices, the Old Testament practices, the Old Testament sacrifices. None of those things were to be permanent. They were God's time. Now that Christ has come, Christ has established the new, and, and they are to follow Christ and no longer follow Old Testament tradition. The law was the law when it was the law and the dispensation period of the law. But now that Christ has come and fulfilled the old, now it's not the law anymore. Grace has been applied. They've moved from the dispensation period of the law into the dispensation period of grace. So now to try to look back is nothing more than holding on to tradition. A lot of churches are guilty of that today. I was listening to a song, Come On Day, and, and just... God gave me something else about tradition. There's so much. Most of the argument in the church today is over tradition. Who likes contemporary music? Who likes Southern gospel music? Well, before that, it was who likes Southern gospel music versus who liked old hymn music. Before that, it was who liked old hymn music versus whatever was before that. But it's always about tradition. The reason there's so much. These pews. The only reason we haven't changed the pews and done all we want to do to the building is because we didn't have a million dollars. The church voted all but seven people to change it out. But I can tell you there was a little bit of talk about changing the pews. I told my own son, don't let that wooden pew become an idol to you. My son was raised by a traditionalist. My son was raised by somebody that's old school that didn't listen to contemporary Christian music. Came in as a pastor of this church that way. God's had to do a lot of work in me. But those things are tradition. That pew is a tradition. I'm stuck on that pew because it's a tradition. You put chairs in there and it looks like a theater, but it becomes more comfortable becomes more modern. It becomes more attractive. Does it make us sinners? Nope. All it does is changes what it looks. But tradition is killing the church. It's not about tradition. It's about relationship. And, and that's what we ought to all be pursuing is relationship. And that's what he's trying to tell them here. You guys are bound down in all of this tradition. So he's laying this, this foundation here. Abraham had, had no possessions in the land of Canaan. He simply moved by faith. He had the promise, but he didn't know where the land was. He didn't give him a road map. He didn't give him the name of the country. He said, you just go until I say stop. And when you get there, I'll stop you. In the meantime, you just keep on walking. That, that's got to be pretty hard, hasn't it? I mean, it's one thing to set up and leave your homeland, leave everything you knew, but just get up and start going in that direction. When you get there, I'll say stop. Until I say stop, you just keep on going. But that's where Abraham is. He just has to move, and he's moving on faith, but that's how God wants to work. That's what even all the New Testament's about. God wants to work through men, but God works through faith and faith alone. So what God's looking for is some men and women who will put their faith in him, put their trust in him, and just be what God says be. Verse number six, it says that, that God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land and that they should bring them into bondage and entreat them evil 400 years. Stephen points out the fact that the Jews were slaves for 400 years. That was the beginning of the Hebrew nation. That's where they rose in numbers. They, they were slaves to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh began to kill the babies because there was getting to be too many of them. So that's where the nation grows up. It's foretold that they're going to be in bondage. They didn't all of a sudden get overthrown. They didn't all of a sudden wind up in trouble. God foretold before the promise ever got there that, that it would be 400 years they're going to be in bondage. But the reason why God wanted them in bondage, the reason why God did it for 400 years is God knew that God would intervene. 
Some of you are going to need to plug in your situations right here. If this is going to be helpful to you tonight, you're going to, look, you're going to need to take Abraham's world and his Bible. You're going to need to plug it into your life right here to whatever's going on, whatever your problems, whatever trouble. God knew that God was going to allow Egypt 400 years of slavery, 400 years of abuse, 400 years of being beat down by the Pharaoh because God was going to use that. God was going to send a deliverer. God was going to restore his children, and God was going to bring them into the land that he has promised. So Stephen establishes the fact that God made a promise to Abraham. Abraham set out to go to a land that he had no idea where it was, and it was 400 years before God's going to fulfill the promise. They've got to go through all this slavery first. For the first 400 years, they, they are prisoners in a foreign land. They were persecuted, mistreated, beaten. Their babies were killed to keep them from, from becoming too many. There's no way that the priest or any of the Sanhedrin council that he's talking to, there's no way that any of them can argue with what Stephen is saying. All of this is written in the books. They know this. The Sanhedrin Council knows this better than anybody. They are the religious elite. It has been their job to study, to learn, to know the law, to keep the law. The scribes are to keep the law from sheepskin to sheepskin. They're the reason that we have this book today. It's because they kept the law perfectly written. They kept the words perfectly moved onto sheepskins until paper came along and they kept God's word preserved. They know exactly what Stephen is talking about. There's no way that they can argue with them. They know that the Old Testament scriptures are the truth of the word of God and they know the Old Testament scriptures as well as anybody. Stephen's not telling them anything that, that they don't know. He's simply using the word of God and the word of God alone to make his point. Who does that sound like? That's all Jesus ever did. Every time they ever questioned Jesus, he turned to the Word of God. He turned to the Scripture. See, that's why it's so important that you and I read God's Word and learn God's Word so that when the devil is whispering in your ear and knocking on your door, you can use Scripture to shut his mouth. We have no power against him but the name of Jesus Christ, and that's all we need. But we need to know God's Word so that we can use God's Word. So that's what he uses right here. He's using nothing but, but straight out of God's Word. Word. What verse am I on? I'm going to get excited before I get done. Verse 7. The nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God. And after that they shall come forth and serve me in this place. God has, has made promises. God has fulfilled, again, you're going to need to plug your own stories in right here for all this to work for you tonight. God has fulfilled the promise in his own time. 400 years is nothing to God. The distance between Egypt and Canaan land is nothing to God. God is not bound by time. God is not bound by space. God is able to accomplish that which he has promised. God is able to abound. God is able to take care of his children. God is able to do that which we don't think can be done. God is able to meet needs that we don't think can be met. God is able to make a way out of no way, anytime, anywhere, any day. So, so God has set it up here. I mean, Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth in the day. That was nothing to God. The Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the planet. If the Pharaoh wants you dead, then you're done. Snuff, gone, done. 
He, he is the most powerful man on the earth. That was nothing to God. God wasn't impressed by any of the buildings or the shrines that Egypt had built. He wasn't impressed by their gold cups or anything that they had made. God wasn't impressed by all the many gods that they had or any of those things of the Greek gods and goddesses and all the statues. God wasn't impressed by any of that stuff. The Pharaoh thinks he's a big bag of chips and he's got cheese to go with it and he's all that and then some. Pharaoh is nothing but a tool in the hand of God. God has raised Pharaoh to an elite status on this planet to make him the most powerful man on earth so that God could crush him like powder and his children could watch it. And there was nothing that the Pharaoh could do about it. So Pharaoh looks like this big bad bear. When you read the Old Testament, this giant that's, that's beating the, the Egyptians and he's got all, or beating the children of Israel and how the Egyptians come after and they're going to destroy Israel. But when you really look at it, Pharaoh is nothing but a tool in the hand of God. God deliberately set him up as, as this hierarchy, as this superior being, deliberately put him over his own children for 400 years so that God could come in and do miracles that nobody could deny. How many of you got a miracle in your life that nobody can deny? Every one of us in this place has seen God do things. God has to sometimes allow a situation to get to where it is so that God can do something that in the end you can't say it was nobody, nobody but God. And that, that's, what, that's what has happened here. He, he, he has let them build up so that God could come in and that God could make a way. Pharaoh didn't delay God's promises being fulfilled. He simply provided a way for God to fulfill it so that his children might have faith. He simply provided a way for God to show his might. Stephen goes on, verse number 8. It says that he gave them a covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac, circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob. And Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs, which is the 12 sons of Jacob. <laughs> there was no temple. This is what Stephen is still establishing here. That there's no temple practices. That there's no Mosaic law. That there's simply Abraham, Abraham's descendants, and faith. That, that's all there is. They don't, they don't have all these things that you say we got to have. They don't have all of these things about the, the temple and all this there. It's just his family and faith. It went on that way for centuries. It went for centuries without a temple. It went for centuries without temple practices and Mosaic law. It could have gone that way forever. It could still be that way today. None of it ever happened. Just God has a plan. And God in his ultimate plan has brought man through a series of things. And what happened from the Old Testament to the New Testament was a change. It was a change basically to make the old things new again. The law, the law that they had was functional in its time. The law pr provided a, a guideline of how men ought to act and what would be determined as right and wrong, sinful versus not sinful. The temple is also functional. It, is the, it provided men with a, with a method of worship and how they could bring for the sacrifice and to have sins forgiven and have the sins of their family forgiven. So both of these are functional, but neither one of them are necessary. God took care of his children well before the Mosaic Law. God, God took care of his children well before the temple was brought into temple practices, back in the days of the patriarch. So, so both, of them, both of them were functional in their day. They had a purpose. God had a designed purpose, but neither of them are necessary. We see that the patriarchs, they managed well without them for centuries. 
Christ has come to fulfill the old so that he might restore the new. Christianity, in a sense, is a return to the original where we live by faith. It gets rid of the rules. It gets rid of the, the rituals. And it establishes a relationship. We are to have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. We don't have to have the laws posted and go strictly by the law. We've got to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and the second is like unto it, love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophet. That means if you love God and you love your neighbor, then you're going to keep the law. If you truly are a follower of Christ and you truly want to live pleasing to Christ, you truly want to be a, a man of God and you're doing the best that you can to serve God, then you're going to love people. You're not going to mistreat people mistreat people so so he shows that that the law was no longer necessary because we're now in the dispensation period of grace verse number nine Stephen kind of changes his approach a little bit um he, he changes his point of attack from from the very beginning how the Jewish people have resisted God's plan from day one Remember even when God brought them out with a mighty hand after all the plagues and even, even the Passover and the death of the firstborn of the Egyptian and how God brought them out, how, what a bunch of whiny babies they were. They, they've been against God's plan from day one. Remember when God parted the Red Sea and brought them across on dry land, how they rejoiced them when they looked back and saw the Egyptians coming. They start crying, oh, we should have just died in Egypt. Remember how soon as God drowned all the armies of Pharaoh and they get out and God's providing manna on the ground and, and then they think they don't have water. So rather than trusting, they start whining, oh, we should have just died in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here? God gives them water from the rock at Horeb and it ain't, it ain't a couple years later they need water again. They're crying again. They've already forgot about it again. From day one, they, they have rebelled. From day one, they have resisted God's law. Verse number nine, it says, in the patriarchs, Moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. So he takes a step now. He changes his, his platform a little bit. He changes his direction. He comes from Abraham through the sons, and he comes into the patriarchs, the, the sons of Jacob. And he says, moved with envy that, that they sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Their unbelief, the sons of Jacob, their unbelief, began with, with the mistreatment of their own brother, their own, their own flesh and blood. Joseph, I want to say, is probably, if I, if I just had to say it me, I would say Joseph is the greatest Christ type in the Old Testament. But since everybody has their own opinion, I'll say he's one of the greatest. But I, I truly believe it's the greatest type of Christ in the Old Testament. Just like the Sanhedrin rejected Christ, the patriarchs rejected Joseph. Pilate knew that it was for envy that the, the Sanhedrin and the high priest, it was envy was the reason that they brought Jesus. Envy is the reason that the sons of Jacob tried to get rid of Joseph. The, the children of Israel united to try to get rid of Jesus because of his goodness. The sons of Jacob tried to get together and get rid of Joseph because of his goodness. The text says, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions, gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Jesus was rejected by his brothers, the Jews. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He is rejected by his own, and he is sold by one of his own for the price of a slave. 
Jesus is falsely accused. He suffered for the sins of others because he had no sins of his own. He was betrayed by his own and then cast out by the Gentiles. He was placed in a borrowed grave. Then he went and took possession of the keys of death and of hell. He came forth triumphant to be seated at the right hand of the Father, exalted on high. He's given a name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Joseph was rejected by his brothers. He was sold for the price of a slave. He was made to suffer for the sins of others because in his own life he had done nothing wrong. He was in prison because after being sold to the Midianites, he was then sold into Potiphar's house and he became a high official in Potiphar's house. But his wife wanted him to do some things with her that he wasn't willing to do. It was ungodly. So she accused him of rape. It never happened. She's trying to rape him. He winds up in a prison cell for doing nothing wrong. He's in this cold, dark, damp dungeon where he's going to be left to die. Nothing's coming to get him out. So he's raised from the death of this prison cell. He's seated by the right hand of Pharaoh. He is, he is the second most powerful man in all the world. Genesis chapter 41, verse number 45, says that Pharaoh called Joseph's name. Y'all will give me a minute and I'll pronounce this one. Zaphnath Paneah. It is Z-A-P-H-N-A-T-H-P-A-A-N-E-A-H. Zaphnath Paneah. Gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, and Joseph went over all went out over all the land of Egypt, and Joseph was thirty years old. Boy, that sounds familiar, don't it? Same age when Jesus started his ministry. Was thirty years old when he stood before Pilate, or when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Every knee in the land had to come bow down to Joseph. Egypt is the most powerful nation on earth. He is the second most powerful man in Egypt, which means he is the second most powerful man in all the world. He is ruler over Pharaoh's house. It's symbolic of Jesus Christ. is ruler over the kingdom of God. He was ruler over all the things of the earth, all the grain, all the food, all that was there, which is symbolic of Jesus Christ. is ruler over all the universe. He was seated beside Pharaoh, the king of the second highest. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father on his throne on high forever. Stephen didn't have to go into great detail here to make his point. Again, the members of the Sanhedrin, they know very well what Stephen's talking about. They, they know quite well what he's saying. They have no trouble seeing where Stephen's going with all this. Just like God delivered Joseph from the prison of death, God has delivered Jesus Christ from the chains of death. Jesus Christ lifted on high, seated at the right hand of majesty. And, and, and the same with Joseph. He is seated in, in, in a high place in spite of the fact that his own family tried to get rid of him. Verse number 11, Stephen begins here. He, he, he begins to show, to be honest, he, he pulls Romans into this book. He begins to show how all things work together for them who love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You begin to see it right here in, in Stephen's story and his testimony. Verse number 11 says, There came a Darth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan. In great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. When Jacob heard there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. So Jacob sent the very ones who had sold Joseph into slavery to go find food in Egypt. And unbeknown to them, what they found was Joseph the highest man in the land. 
unbeknown to them, what they found is the dreamer that told them about a dream that all of you will bow down and serve me. Unbeknown to them, what they found is God's promise fulfilled in a man that he made years ago that he had to go through a whole lot of hard stuff to get where he's going, but it's exactly where God said it would be. Our life ain't no different. Our life is no different. God is able to deliver us through to get us where God's taken us to be. Joseph, in the first time they come, he sends them away. And y'all know the deal, put the money in the bag, kind of trick, and got them, and, and going to hold one. He says, you got to come back and bring Benjamin, the younger brother. And so he tricks them in, into coming back. But Genesis 45, beginning in verse number 3, says that Joseph said unto his brother, and this is when they come back, he said, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? And brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. You imagine that. Joseph said to his brethren, come near to me, I pray you. They came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall be neither earring nor harvest. God sent me before you to preserve you and posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. It was not you that sent me hither, but God. Boy, what kind of wisdom is that? You didn't send me here. You just sold me to a media night. But God used all that. That was my transportation. That, that was my Greyhound bus. That's how God got me here. He used you to sell me to a media night, to sell me to Potiphar's house, to get me in a prison, to get me out into the Pharaoh's house, to get me to where I am. That was God's transportation. So don't, don't, don't be hard on yourselves. Don't look down on yourselves. He said, it was God that, that brought me here. God sent me before you. It was not you that sent me, but God. And he hath made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of all his house, ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Genesis chapter 50, Jacob has died. His brothers are worried now that, well, Jacob or Joseph was really only nice to us because he knew daddy would get on to him and he, he wanted to honor daddy so now that daddy's gone he's going to be hard on so he made up lies about what he said but in Genesis chapter 50 verse number 18 his brethren also went down and fell before his face and they said behold we be thy servants Joseph said unto them fear not for I'm in the place of God as for you you thought evil against me God meant it unto good to bring it to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. God used the rejection of Joseph to put him in the place where he would be able to save many. God used famine as an instrument to bring salvation to God's people, to, to Jacob and to the patriarchs, his sons. God used the rejection of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary as an instrument to bring all of those who will come to salvation. Whosoever will, let him come. The cross, the cross represents the greatest tragedy of all times in man's dealing with God. But the cross, the same cross, represents the greatest victory in God's dealings with mankind. So it's all about how you look at it, isn't it? Colossians 2.14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was con contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That means that God took our sins and nailed them to his cross. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. 
So after Joseph was, was betrayed, God put in motion a series of events that has brought all of Joseph's brothers to kneel at his feet. Now, some of you here, some of you listening, somebody somewhere, you've been, you've been struggling with something a long time. You've been praying for something a long time. You've been needing deliverance a long time. You've been needing for God to intervene a long time. You've been crying out and begging to God a long time. Remember where all this started. Joseph had a dream. Genesis 37, 5, Joseph dreamed a dream. He told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. He said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. He dreamed yet another another dream and told his brother, big mistake, said, behold, I've dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars made obeisance to me. I saw something today. I didn't have time to study and see if this is it. The sun, the moon, and the 11 stars that made me wonder, is that his father and his mother and his 11 brothers? I don't know. I didn't have time to study it, but there's your little tidbit. You may want to go look and study because I don't know what else it would mean. But, but it was because of the dreams that their hatred for Joseph grew. Genesis chapter 37, Jacob sent Joseph out to go check on the brothers that was taking care of the herds out in the wilderness. I'm fixing to have to get done. And, and so they go out, and it says in chapter 37, verse 19, book of Genesis, they said one another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we'll say some evil beast hath devoured him. We'll see what will become of his dreams. See, God always has a plan. His brothers wanted to kill him. They just wanted to get rid of him, be done. There ain't no coming back. Let's just do away with him. But God had a plan. So God took the oldest in Reuben, and, and he, he says, <clears throat> Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands. So he goes and gets him after they got him. He said, let us not kill him. See, even in the midst of all the hate and all this there, God took the oldest and he made a way to, to preserve his life so that he can now get him to the places prepared. E even right then when he seems in a really dark spot, I imagine being in a wilderness in the middle of nowhere and your own brothers hate you and they don't come against you and all of them want to kill you. That's probably about as dark as life gets, wouldn't you think? And there ain't nobody coming to your rescue because ain't nobody out there that knows you or likes you, so you're just there. But then God puts a way in. It's no different in our life. God will always have an eldest brother. God will always have somebody there to, to take care to meet the need. So not, not only that, but it was the interpretation of dreams that got him out of the prison. Remember, it all started with a dream. He dreamed that his brothers would bow down and worship him. He dreamed that his entire family and that everybody around would bow down and worship him. Then everything, I mean, all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're sold, you're in prison, you're in a dungeon, you lied about by Potiphar's wife, you locked up in a cold, damp dungeon, you think you're going to die down there, but I mean, it doesn't seem like it gets much worse. I mean, how's anybody going to bow down and worship me here? Seems like God's plan isn't coming through, doesn't it? Seems like God might have forgot his promise. But that's not the way it was at all. Back up here at the Pharaoh, he, he hears about a man that is able to interpret dreams. 
Remember one of, one of Pharaoh's own was down there and he had interpreted a dream. And so now he's back up here and he forgot about Joseph until all of a sudden the kings had a dream that no man can interpret. And, and man, there's a big problem going on. And that guy said, hey, I remember a dude down in prison when I was down there. There was a guy interpreting one of my dreams. And so they had him brought up. A dream's where it started. A dream's what brought him up. So he comes up and he interprets the king's dreams. And all of a sudden he is restored and, and, and brought to the top of the hill to where he is the second most powerful man in the world. It took years to get there. It took heartache to get there. It took a lot of trials to get there. For Joseph to end up in the place that he saw in his dreams, it took a long time. But God is always faithful. He had to go through a lot of stuff. But God is always faithful. God hasn't changed. God took years to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham. But he fulfilled it. God, had, God is taking 2,000 years and counting to answer the prayer that he's made to the Jews. Because it won't happen until after we're gone and out of here. God hasn't broken his promise. God is just delaying the promise while we go through the church age while he blesses you and I. But he hasn't changed it any more than he changed it during the 400 years when they were in slavery. There was just a little detour in there. But God had a plan through it all. It took years for God to fulfill the plan with Moses. It took 400 years before he sent Moses as a deliverer to bring the people out. God took years to fulfill the dream of Joseph. But in every case, no matter how long it took, God is always faithful. We go through some stuff that makes it hard to remember. We go through some stuff in this life, in this world. We go through some things. And, and I, I may be the only one in here, but I tell you straight up, I've asked it on more than one occasion, God, where are you at? Where are you in all this? Do you not care? Anybody ever ask God that besides me? Do you not care? How stupid is that to ask God that? Jesus died on the cross for me, and I asked God, do you not care what I'm going through? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You ever get so caught in a situation? Does it not matter to you that I'm hurting? Where are you in all this? He's standing right there, listening to my squabbling with a loving, compassionate, long-suffering heart when he ought to knock me off my feet and kill me and send me to hell, but he just loves me too much. I'm just saying, I start studying this stuff and looking at all the promises, and I see how long it took. For a lot of them to get fulfilled, all of a sudden, the few months that we go through a trial don't seem quite as long. It ain't as long as 400 years. God's faithful. Whatever it is that we're going through, God's there. God cares. God loves us. God has a plan. And sometimes we've got to be put down in a pit. Wait till some Midianites come along so we can be sold for the price of a common slave. Carried over to Potiphar's house, cast off in a prison. Put down in a cold, dark dungeon, lied about, the world lied about, to get you in trouble for something you never did. You got to go through all that stuff. But at the end of the day, God's faithful. God will do everything that God promised. Well, Lord willing, we'll pick up. There's still a lot to the story. It really makes me want to back up and start in the middle of Genesis and do the last half of Genesis, but it'd take a long time. But the, the story of the life of Joseph is an incredible story. 
And Stephen is taking them back to the beginning, and he's establishing all of this. What he's showing them here, just I'll, I'll end with this so you remember, so we can pick up there next week, Lord willing. But what he's showing them is, you, you think the temple's all there is. There wasn't no temple in the days of Abraham. And there don't have to be a temple on the other side. You think the Mosaic law was all the way. I'm telling you, the Mosaic law came to an end. Stephen's trying to tell them, you better thank God with me that the dispensation period of the law has come to an end. We're in the dispensation period of grace and mercy. Jesus Christ has come to take all that away, all that change. You're staking everything on tradition now. You're staking everything on Old Testament law. Jesus Christ made all that new. And he's trying to invite them. He's doing everything he can to bring them to the other side of the cross. Say, over there was law, but on this side is mercy. And Jesus Christ is the answer. Lord willing, we'll pick up right there next week. God, thank you so much for being so good. Thank you, God, that we can look back in your word, Lord, and that we can see, Father, all the different times, all the different, different seasons, the dispensations that, that you brought them through, the, the period of innocence, God, and the time of law and all that's there. But, God, I, I thank you, Father, that, that we get to live in this dispensation of grace. I thank you that we get to live under the law of mercy, the rule of mercy reigns. And all we have to do is come to Christ for forgiveness of sins. I thank you, God, for loving somebody like me in spite of me, God. I thank you for loving us the way that you do, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that you sent your, your very own to die for us at our very worst. God, you're so good. Lord, I, I know we, we complain, God. I know I complain. Father, I, I pray you'd help us to stay focused on your word, to see that you always have a plan. And if we're in a spot, it's because you've allowed that spot. And that means that you're doing something in us, something good, something to make us better, something to increase our faith, something to draw us closer to you. But it's for our good and for your glory or you wouldn't allow it. God, I pray you'd help us to just be faithful to your word. Keep our eyes focused on you. God, I pray you touch the minute that's sick. Lord, I pray you be with those that are hurting. God, I pray you be with, with Nani and her, and her family. God, be with John's family. God, I pray you'd hold them up. I pray that your grace would hold them when they can't stand on their own. God, thank you so much for being so good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.